Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listener, to the Ad Nauseam Podcast. This is episode 72. 72? I cannot believe that. Yeah, take nine episodes, multiply them by eight. And you get 72? This episode. <laughs> Tonight we're talking about Cicero's De Natura Deorum, book two, and... This is part two, book part two, two, part book two. two. That's right. Yep. My name, as always, is Dr. David C. Noe, and I am here in the Vomitorium, Vomitorium West, with my good friend... And co-host, yes. Dr. Jeffrey T. Winkle. That's right. I'm glad to be here. How are you doing tonight, Dave? Let me ask you first. Okay. How are you doing tonight, Dave? I'm actually feeling really uh, quite well. Um, it, we're, it's a late hour here recording. It is. And that's always, you know, I'm uh, uh, during the winter time. I kind of go to bed with the chickens a little right. bit, but uh, I'm, I'm feeling good. Do I'm you good, do yeah. you hibernate or do you estivate? I I am an estivator. Are you? Yeah. <laughs> I usually take the estivator when I get to the mall. I got to go up to the food court. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah, I'm not taking the stairs. No way. No way, yeah. Strictly estivating. But But it's cold. It is very cold. We have polar vortex here in Michigan once again. We do. We dodged a bit of a bullet with a big uh, uh, front moving through, but it is. There was a snow dump, but we got some. We got some. Six, seven inches. Yeah, my children were disappointed they didn't get a snow day today, but... uh, yeah, but there was a snow day yesterday, if I'm not mistaken. There was. Oh yeah, did they not get a no, snow day? They were, they were they were forced to go to school. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're feeling well. I am feeling well. You ready to do some Cicero tonight? I am ready. You're to, always ready to do Cicero. Aren't I you? love the Ciceronian language. I love the way he writes. It's beautiful, flexible, symmetrical, but with variety. Mm-hmm. Sometime we should devote an episode to. How Cicero puts together his sentences. I would like to. I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, thank you. Yeah. It, it is my contention that a, a Ciceronian sentence mm-hmm. is a work of art, like a Haydn symphony, like a, a Renaissance painting, yeah. like a brilliant grandmaster chess game. You know, these are high artistic achievements. Yeah. Now let me ask you this. Right. So if um, you had to, if you had to pick any Roman, you know, to go back in time and meet and converse with, would it be Cicero, or is it one of those cases of like you, know, you don't want to meet your heroes? When you put the when you put it right to me like that, I'd have to say no. Really, I'd rather meet Virgil. Virgil, really? Yeah. Okay. That that, deep affection for Virgil, the man's heart really comes through his writing. Yeah, I'd agree with that. All right. Well, that's. I mean, that's something we might need to explore in a in a, in a future episode. Maybe I lie down on a couch and you stand by with a legal pad. And Sounds great. Ask some questions. Just go all Freud on you. That's right. Right. So, so what uh, what author would you like to meet if you could go back in time, jumping in H.G. Wells' jalopy and? Uh... Well, you know, my, my gut would say um, would say Apuleius, mm-hmm. but I'm you know it's one of the, it's because he gave you your PhD, right? Yes, but at the same time, it's it's one of those things that um, I think you have to be careful about. Uh, being excited about meeting people that you admire. I think that's right. Because I think that in some ways it's more valuable to live with kind of the myth and and let the work speak for itself. Well, when we were both undergrads at that institution that we don't talk about, um, you were a couple years ahead of me. I was. And there was the aura of Jeff Winkle. Was there? That's what it was? Walking around the halls. And I thought, (laughs) I'd like to meet that guy, that bespectacled cartoonist, you know? And now that uh, we're close friends... 
the bloom is off the, the bloom is right, exactly. off the off the myth. That's right, exactly. We discovered that each of us is all too human, <laughs> right? So, and we we never had one seminar together, did we? No, no, no. no, no you were way way ahead of way me. ahead. Well, not in age. I just yeah. mean in um, dignitas. A dignitas, right? Okay, okay, yeah. All right, we're already off track. What are Way we doing off here? track. Okay, um, let's start with it. We got a shout out. We have to give a shout okay. out. Take it away. <clears> this is going to go to another one of my friends, the Reverend Jeffrey B. Wilson. I think the B, I'm not sure what the B stands for. Uh, bodacious, maybe? Um, I, I think it's from the Venerable Bede. The Venerable Bede. Yes. Uh, okay, so here here we go. The shout out to Jeff Wilson. He was raised on the plains of eastern Colorado. Wow. That already sounds interesting, doesn't it? It does. I, yeah, I, I read that earlier. And I, and then, I mean, have you made that drive going through like I-80, like through Nebraska? Yes. And, and you hit Colorado and you're like... Where are the mountains? Exactly. You got to go quite a ways to get to them. Yes. And so he he lived on those. He lived on the plains. Those dusty plains. Wouldn't it be nice to say I was raised on the plains? I wish I could say that. Yes. I I was not. His family belonged to the First United Presbyterian Church in Greeley, Colorado. He went to Oral Roberts University. Is that in Tulsa? It is in Oklahoma. And you know, it has a certain kind of a reputation. Uh, and so it's interesting that Jeff is a graduate of uh, there, BA, 1984, mm-hmm. um, and then became a Presbyterian minister, went to Union Theological Seminary, lived in Virginia, lived in Royal Oak, Michigan. He keeps moving Kansas. East. Oh, he's in Kansas, Yeah, too, so yeah. they're back to the West, uh, and eventually ended up in Southfield, Michigan. Wow, lots of bouncing around. That's right, where yeah. he has served as a pastor for 26 years. Wow, Okay. So and, Southfield uh, on the other side of the state from where we are right now. Yeah. That's right. Yep. So uh, Jeff's uh, in good shape. He's a mountain climber, right? Oh, why is he living in Michigan? Well, I don't know. He's he's quite a bit older than you and I, yeah. right? Well, than I, at least. Um, but uh, <laughs> he's in really good shape. He's in such good shape that my daughter actually thinks he looks younger than I do. Really? Yeah. All that mountain climbing. I guess that's, uh, that's it. So he's married to Heidi. Mm-hmm. They have three children, and they have one grandchild, and he loves the podcast. Excellent. And he's always uh, asking me questions about it. In fact, a little bit of an anecdote, mm-hmm. right? I see Jeff at uh, ecclesiastical assemblies, mm-hmm. church meetings. Yeah. And he said, you know, David, I'm, I'm loving the podcast, but... You're like a different person when I listen to it. You're not at all like you are here. So, well, Jeff, this is a different setting. Yeah. Would you want me to grab a microphone and start cracking jokes and saying inanities here at the church assembly? So did you feel like he was kind of disappointed with you in person? Did no, you, no. I, th- I think he was surprised. Okay. Because we've known each other a long time. And, mm. you know, I'm the kind of person who tries to behave differently in different settings. Of course. Aren't you like that? I think so. Right. You have kind of a stage personality, even right. a stage personality. Right, right. right. Yeah, yeah. So it was just, you know... It's that, you know, meet your hero kind of thing. Right? I, think, I think that's what it I is. I don't think I'm Jeff's hero. But <laughs> <laughs> the bottom line is, thanks for listening. Yes. So, Dave, what are we talking about tonight? We're going to talk about Cicero. Yep. We're going to talk about his uh, philosophical work, one of the three great ones, De Natura Deorum, What's Up With The Gods? What's Up With The Gods, yeah. And last week, we talked about book one, and we skimmed the surface quite deliberately because we had covered all of the themes in previous episodes on Epicurus. Yes, right. Four episodes. Lucretius, I should say. Right, 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 right. So we didn't want to kind of beat a dying horse there. That's right. And, and talk too much or recap too much uh, about the Epicureans. Right. Um, but tonight we're going to get more into the, the nittus grittus. That's of, right. Of book two, right? <laughs> Down into the, uh, how do how would we say this, the quidam rudera? I don't know. That's the best I got with it. That's but, your nitty gritty? Yeah, particular yeah. little sparks or elements, something like that. I like it. Kind of like the nitty gritty. Yep. So we're going to begin with uh, some quotations, our op quote, uh, from A.A. A. Long, right? Right, which I believe you, you had um, 
promised last time, but we ran out of time. We ran out of time. Yep. So these are quotes from A.A. A. Long, and it's taken from the 1995 book, simply and elegantly entitled, Cicero, the Philosopher. Right. And if I remember from last time, you were saying that, uh, in your opinion, this book was, is almost single-handedly revived Cicero's reputation as a philosopher. Absolutely. Okay. Right. What's he got to say? So this is uh, from the you know from the the book by Powell. He's the editor, and the essay is by Long, and it's page uh, forty-three, and he's dealing with the way in which uh, Cicero was influenced by Plato and Aristotle, respectively. Okay. And this distinction is quite interesting. So he begins by saying, as an official academic, now we should pause. Right. Just what? Four words in and make sure the audience understands when uh, an academic is referred to here. It doesn't mean professional university professor. Right. It's exactly. a, a person who belongs to the academic school of philosophy, mm-hmm. which is a kind of skepticism. Right? right. A belief in what's probable. You follow verisimilitude. You are uh, devoted to reason. You're not supposed to have dogmas mm-hmm. and you're not supposed to rely upon authority. Right, you don't just follow what your teacher says. Mm-hmm. You sort things out for yourself. Yes. All right. So, as an official academic, Cicero could not fail to venerate Plato. Even so, his laudation of the great man is persistent and extreme. Plato is virtually a philosopher's god, quasi quidnam Deus philosophorum. That's from Book Two. Uh, Cicero calls him that god of ours, Deus Illinoster. Oh man. Calls him our Plato in the Republic and in the Laws, and he calls him the first of philosophers in rank, the princeps philosophorum, right? High praise. The actual, the uh, absolute, the veritable prince of philosophers. Okay. High praise. And we go on a little bit, <clears throat> and Long gives us some more information that's really, really helpful. He says, it is clear that Cicero did read Plato for himself, that he was capable of excerpting passages which suited the purposes of his own writings, and that he could distinguish many of Plato's key doctrines. Sometimes what he says about Plato is colored by a doxographical background. At other times, apparently not so. So should we unpack that for a minute? Please do. Right. So doxographical means the kind of um, praise and adulation that can grow up around a hero. Mm-hmm. Right, so the hero becomes a, a myth, a legend, and some of the reality uh, is filtered out of the equation. Yeah. So Cicero seems to have been influenced by some of these writings about Plato, which are not always dealing really with Plato's thought per se, but the myth, the penumbra around the the man. So already by well, I mean I, already by Cicero's time, yeah. I mean, Cicero was you know almost you know three four four hundred years right. of, uh, distant from that's right from Plato. Um, I think sometimes we tend to think of these. These ancients is much kind of more squeezed together chronologically, Correct. but there's a massive distance. There's a huge telescoping. So plenty effect. of time for kind of the myth of Plato to 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 um, to grow and snowball. That's right. Yeah. So he would refer to Plato as one of the ancients. Sure. Right? So for Cicero, Plato's an ancient. We think they're pretty close together because we're a couple thousand years away, but it's not really how it worked. Right. He was as dis- as distant from Plato as we are from Shakespeare, roughly. That's right. Yeah. Quite dif- quite distant. Mm-hmm. So he had a, a strong reliance on Plato. He could articulate theory of the forms. Um, Cicero identifies six characteristics of the forms for which he has excellent platonic authority. So the everlastingness of the forms, their non-susceptibility to change in contrast with perceptible things. The paradigmatism. So the forms are a paradigm for reality. Mm-hmm. The accessibility to the mind, but not the senses. Mm-hmm. So your mind can intuit right the forms directly, but you can't perceive them through your nose, your ears, right, so forth. Uh, what else we got? The responsibility for instantiation or participation by particulars, and standing as the objects of definition. 
So now let me just let me ask a question here. Um, so that sounds fairly dogmatic to me. You're right. So how does that fit with an academic approach to things? If 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 he's if we're kind of supposed to remain a kind of uh, individualized skepticism about, he seems to be accepting Plato's notion of the forms as something kind of um, um, almost factual. Yes. Well, there are two kinds of skepticism. Okay. We're going to break it down. All right. There is a Pyrrhonic skepticism, which is the extreme kind, right? So Pyrrhonic skepticism is the kind that says, um, like Gorgias, when we were talking about, he's kind of yeah. the ultimate uh, inspiration for this. Nothing exists. If anything exists, you can't know it. If you can know it, you can't communicate it. Yeah. So that's a radical skepticism. Yeah. And Cicero nowhere subscribes to that. Gotcha. That's kind of considered beyond the pale. It is the most un-Roman of all kinds of philosophies. Mm-hmm. Cicero uh, is an adherent of the, the moderate skepticism, which he believes is more platonic. And that allows you actually to hold on to some dogmas, but only if you have subjected them to adequate reason. Gotcha. After you've reasoned your way through it, you can, you know, arrive at a position that you say, this is probably true. And so I should, you know, hold on to it, but I'm not believing it because anybody told me so. Right. Or just because it's convenient in my system of belief. Yeah. It has to be proven. Yeah. So I would assume that... um, Cicero, his understanding and acceptance of Plato's um, notion of the forms has got to be heavily influential on how Cicero thought about the gods. Yes. Right? I mean, they kind of roughly fall into a similar kind of category. Exactly. All right, we'll see where this goes. That's right. So you can have true beliefs about the gods, or at least highly probable beliefs about the gods. Gotcha. So long as you arrive at them through a system of reason. Mm -hmm. Now, the fly in the ointment for Cicero, um, and my thesis we talked about a little bit last week is, if you're going to be a Roman, you really can't be such a probabilist. You really can't subscribe so much verisimilitude because the ethical implications require all kinds of moral and even theological commitments in the Roman context. Right, 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 right. How can you uphold the most maiorum? How can you say you got to exercise dignitas? You know, you, you have to be a, a person with gravitas who cares for his family and so forth. These are highly moral and, in the Roman system, theological categories. Yeah. How can you pursue those as an academic? Right. I think we were talking a little bit last time about how, um, well, it kind of reminds me of what we were just talking about, that, you know, Cicero as a politician, as, a, as an orator, as a lawyer, he's a different guy in that context than he is sitting yes. with Velius and Balbus and, 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 and Cotta. Right. Um, and maybe he's, he's, he's kind of compartmentalizing these things. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Mm. Yeah. So let's also talk a little bit about um, Cicero's appropriation of Aristotle. Okay. All right. So we talked about Plato. I'll talk a little bit about Aristotle. This is, again, uh, Anthony Long from this chapter. And uh, he talks about this really important element of rhetoric, which is to be able to argue in utramque partem. So in utramque partem dicere is the phrase, which means to be able to speak on both sides of an issue. Mm-hmm. And this is why he admires Aristotle so much. So he says, Cicero's ideal orator is above all someone with dialectical expertise. Okay. Right? So Cicero's bread and butter is that he's a professional public speaker. Mm-hmm. And that requires great um, skill at entertaining an audience as well as persuading them, right? There are different categories of oratory. Uh, Plutarch tells us when Cicero spoke, it was like lightning flash from his fingers and the crowd swayed back and forth rhythmically to his words. So in order to achieve that effect, he has to be very accomplished oratorically, obviously. Yeah. 
So he says, uh, to express his view more briefly and characteristically, the ideal orator is someone who can speak well on either side, in utram quipartem. This rhetorical practice, according to Cicero, was Aristotle's great innovation. Aristotle invented that, according okay. to Cicero, as a kind of oratorical training. So here's what you're supposed to do, right? Winkle, you're taking an oratory class yeah. from Cicero, mm-hmm. right? And he says, okay, today, Thursday, you're going to argue that uh, the state of Michigan, you know, should invade Ontario. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm very pro that. Violent enough image. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I guess there is something going on in Canada right now with trucks and political unrest. They're, and, they're blocking the road like they do in Greece. Is that what they're doing? Yeah. Tell me about it, because I haven't well, been paying attention. I, I read a little bit about it, but they're, they're striking and... Um, uh, they're upset about something. Okay. Right? And they're, 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 it's, they're, Canadians strike? They're so polite. I know they are. That's what How makes it so strange. That? Exactly. I'm sure, I'm sure it's a very polite strike. Right. Um, but yeah, they're blocking the roads until kind of they get what they want. It's like, mm. it's like in Greece that, were you, were you on the trip uh, with me? Uh, no, I heard about road? it though, with the tractors. Yes. And they just, you were with Ken that time. And there's basically you know, one highway that, that goes north right. south and they just block it. It was the road down to Sunian, wasn't it? Uh, no, it was, it was between, um, it was between like uh, Kalambaka and, uh, oh. and, and Athens. It was kind of in that area. Like when that. you were up at Meteora. Yes. And so, yeah. But didn't Christiana, our guide, I was told, when I heard the story, mm-hmm. we're digressing, audience. That's a good, it's a good story. <laughs> Christiana went and bought a bunch of wine. Yes. And gave it to all of the guys on their tractors who were blockading the road. And yes. And they, you know, they parted like the Red Sea. Yes. It was, it was amazing. <laughs> but she had it all planned out. But I remember the bus kind of coming over this rise and then just... For as far as you could see, hmm. these big tractors just blocking uh, the highway. Strike. And, but it's one of these strikes like in Greece that you can set your watch to it. You know, so it's yeah. strike season. It's strike season. <laughs> so as I understand, in, in Canada, a yeah. similar kind of thing is going on with the truckers. Right. Well, maybe let me choose a less, I don't know, fraught example. Okay. Are we getting a little too political Maybe there? so. Oh, right. 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 Uh, let's say you, you're assigned the task of arguing that we're going to turn the Grand River green for St. Paddy's Day. Gotcha. That's good. I like yeah, that. just like they do in Chicago, mm-hmm. right? They what's that river? It's the Chicago River. The Chicago River's yeah. in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> fancy that. St. <laughs> Paddy's Day, they turn it green, yes. right? Yeah. So, so you're assigned the task. You're going to argue. We're going to turn the Grand River green for mm-hmm. St. Patrick's Day. Yes. So you get up, you make your speech, and then Cicero says, "All right, Winkle, you got that down. Your next task, you're going to argue that." We're not going to turn it green. That that's a destructive, the worst idea that's ever come out of the Kent County. Yeah, I don't know, river office, something yeah. like that. That's inu trumqua partem dicere. Yeah, and Cicero says I'm really drawn to that. Aristotle invented that, and he is the great model. Now, none of Aristotle's original writings survive. All we have is crib notes, you know, from students. Yeah, we don't have any of his dialogues, right? Which supposedly were artistically sublime and uh, it would be really nice to be able to read them that's that's interesting you know I um, I know kind of the, these apocryphal stories about how um, have you heard this this famous story that uh, Plato you know for all of his you know starting the academy and, and such um, the uh, the apocryphal personality of him is that he was a terrible lecturer as a oh, t- really? terrible speaker so there's a, there's a story that was he a good tipper <laughs> Uh, he was a terrible tipper. Terrible tipper. Oh, Plato was a terrible tipper. <laughs> so there's a story where... I'll just have the salad and some, and some water. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a story that he um, he hated to, to teach, and so okay. he, would, he would deliberately in his lectures try to almost drive his students oh, away yeah. and just kind of in, and read from notes in, in a monotone. And there was a story that one by one, uh, you know, his, the students, People would, right. they, they'd walk <clears> away, <throat> and then when he looked up, the only guy left there. Was Aristotle? Was Aristotle? But are you? Is the tra- I've never heard that story. Is there a tradition about Arist- that Aristotle being 
a um, a great orator. Yes, there, that is okay. I wasn't, well, I, I wasn't good aware at, of that. Well, a great writer and good at teaching oratory. Yeah. I, I don't know if if there's a legend of him speaking in public. Okay, other than as a teacher and dialogue. Yeah, right. But your story reminds me of an anecdote of my father-in-law, who uh, was a professional academic for a very long time. Mm-hmm. He once said that when students would take his international relations class, graduate class, he'd walk in. This is really classic. He'd walk in and he would begin writing on the board the books they would have to read in the class. And he'd write one book. You know, everyone's looking around, okay, I can do that. He'd write the second book. Someone would start to pick up their books. He'd write the third book. By the time he got to the end of the list of books that you'd have to read in this class, there was almost nobody left. It was just Aristotle at that yeah, point. Yeah, that's great. That's perfect. Yeah. And, you know, he said, well, look, uh, you got to be serious if you're going to take my class. Yeah. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you work. Man, so, man, I like that. Good story, It huh? is. Yeah. Just like <clears throat> Plato. It's like Plato. So to continue on with Long for just a minute, he says, This rhetorical practice, according to Cicero, was Aristotle's great invention. Cicero mentions the point in several different contexts. In another dialogue, Definibus, he says, The peripatetics taught principles of rhetoric as well as dialectic. This is Cicero speaking. And Aristotle first instituted the practice of speaking on either side concerning individual matters. Cicero says that Aristotle trained young men in arguing theses, propositions, theses, of general scope, not in the philosophical manner of rigorous argument, but with a view to the rhetorician's fullness, so that more elaborate and abundant speeches could be made on either side. Well, that sounds to me just, I, that's just kind of sound, that's a sound educational philosophy. Um, I, I do that a lot in my in my own classes is, is kind of give a thesis and and ask the students to argue both sides right. as a way of kind of you know, seeing it seeing it from a different perspective and trying to come up with evidence for uh, for all all sides of it yeah right right so that's the that's the general reliance okay. to sum up that Cicero had on Plato and Aristotle right. he also imitated Aristotle uh, Plato's platonic form of the dialogue, right? They are dramatic dialogues. And as you were saying last week, Cicero is not actually a participant. He was too young, but he he uh, recounts the story of this dialogue, the three books of De Natura Deorum, as something that he heard when he was a very young man, mm-hmm. when these Roman representatives of the different schools in Rome, uh, I think it was 79, 78 BC, uh, so Cicero would have been in his 20s? In his 20s, yeah. Ish. He'd have been 25, about yeah. 26. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, when they were discussing these these topics, right? And so he's remembering it, but it's clear that throughout, Cicero identifies himself with Cotta. Okay. And Cotta, by general consent, is the most interesting character in any of Cicero's dialogues. And he's our... Um, he's our academic. academic. Right. Yep. So the way to remember uh, how the book is put together is each book has the setting out of a thesis and then a refutation. So book one is Valeus sets out the Epicurean, Cotta refutes it, right? Book two, Balbus sets out the refutation, I'm sorry, the thesis of the Stoics, Mm -hmm. Cotta refutes it. Book three, Cotta sets out the academic position, the other two schools get to add a little bit at the end. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So do we want to talk a little bit about um, Cotta's refutation of Valeus from book one? Yes. Before we dive into 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 book two? Definitely. Okay. So Jeff, we're looking at the end of book one mm-hmm. and we are surveying a little bit of the academic Cotta as he refutes Valeus. Yeah. And Cicero really identifies with Cotta throughout the whole dialogue. So uh, in section ninety-six, 
or right before 96, we see the basis on which the academics argue against the Epicureans. Okay. So because the Epicureans have never observed any other world but this one, it's the only world they've seen, they have no experiential grounding, they have no real nature-based evidence for drawing conclusions. So Cotta says, Valeus and his fellow Epicureans, they posit not thousands of worlds, but countless worlds or infinite worlds. Hmm. The multiverse. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Are you familiar with the multiverse? Now you're talking, of course. Of course. Yes. It's an Avengers Marvel kind of thing. That's right. In which many Spider-Men can show up at the same time. That's right. Yeah. Whether you want them to or not. That's right. Usually you don't. No, you don't. But here they come. You want Tobey Maguire showing up? Um, He's my preferred Spider-Man. Over Garfield? Definitely over Garfield. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And Holland. You down on Holland? No, he's all right. He's just too young. Okay. Yeah. So the skeptic Kata asks Valeus why this should be. Why should there be uh, innumerable worlds, innumerabilia? The answer given is that reason has so indicated, ratu docuit. Okay. So to this reply, Kata argues not from nature primarily, though observations of humans' mental excellence forms a part of his argument, but he instead argues from reason, pointing out that judged solely by reason, the Epicureans ought to conclude many other things as well, which they do not. So this criticism shows that the academic conviction with respect to the weakness of the other schools, Mm -hmm. their reason is inadequate. They're not misled by nature. Academics put little stock in that, but they believe all sorts of things that are not probable. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. So you follow? I'm following. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now you you have you've said a couple of times that um, that Kata is is often considered the most interesting. Yes. Of um, why? Why? <laughs> I mean, I, we haven't I mean, we haven't seen a lot of him yet, but I'm just kind no. of curious. Like, you know, what's your take on that? Right. Yeah. He's coming up more in the third episode. Okay. Right. When we get to book three. Yep. Uh, well, I think Kata is a is an individual who. Uh, has a role in the Roman state and in Roman religion. And Cicero kind of sees himself as kata, right? The the man who is committed to Roman religion and Roman tradition, but just because of the most maiorum, not because of reason, not because of true belief or faith, just because this is what Romans do. Hmm. And I think that that's appealing. And as Cicero struggles not to be the center of the dialogue, but to represent himself in the dialogue, He's playing the role of Kata. Gotcha. It's very similar, probably deliberately so, to the so-called Socratic problem. When you read Plato, are these Socrates' ideas, or are these Plato putting his ideas in the mouth of Socrates? Right, right. And the general consensus is the very early dialogues, like the Apology, you're getting the straight Socrates. Yep. Later on, you're getting mostly Plato, where Socrates is just kind of a puppet almost. He's a mouthpiece for Yeah, a marionette. Right. You can see this uh, specifically in the laws, where Socrates is not even pretending anymore to have a a dialogue, but they're just really long speeches, monologues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So by that time, Plato's just, he's just kind of, he's phoning it in. (laughs) Well, he's phoning in the dramatic elements. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what we really see at the end of book one is that Kata has, at least to Cicero's satisfaction, refuted the Epicurean school. Okay. They've got no really good uh, footing for the things they believe. Nature doesn't suggest their conclusions. Reason certainly doesn't suggest their conclusions. They're, They're bereft of anything plausible or persuasive. Gotcha. All right. So then that, that sets us up for book two, and we get the big character... Balbus. He's our stoic. Yes, whose name actually means stuttering or unable to get the words out. Uh, but that's not how Cicero presents him, actually. Mm. He's a very capable orator and a historical person, right? Like all of the guys in this dialogue. 
But what do you think, Jeff, mm-hmm. about tea? About tea? Yes. I'm pro tea. Are you? Yeah, I'm a coffee guy, but I, I like a good cup of tea, too. So, so tell me a little bit about this Gold River Trading Company. Yes. Um, I, I recently had a cup of their gunpowder black. Okay. And it was, I, I got to admit, it was the first time I've ever tried black tea. The first time. Yes, I've, I've, I drink a lot of green tea. Okay, um, which I like very much. Uh, but I've and I've been told black tea, like green tea, is very healthy. Right. For me, it's supposed to be. Um, it's got antioxidants and things like that. I have no idea what they do, but I've heard they're good. Right. Yeah, and it was very tasty. It was very good. It was. Um, I brewed it up very strong. Okay. Um, did you put any sugar? Any milk? Nothing. I no went black. I did, I did it. Did it straight. Uh-huh. Like, like I do with the, with the green tea too. And right. So it was. Um, I mean, a, a great aroma. Yeah. Um, it was great just to sit on the couch with a book in my hand. Right. I'm reading a book about Jung right now. Oh, Jung. Yeah. So it went, went very well with um, archetypes and synchronicity and all that. All that stuff. <laughs> synchronicity. Yeah. And uh, I had a cup of their cacao tea. Uh, Which is made actually from the husks of the cacao plant. Mm -hmm. And it has a chocolatey, if it's not sweetened at all, there's no sugar in it, but it has a a chocolatey, enriching, very aromatic, pungent flavor. I enjoyed it a lot. But you wouldn't mistake it for like a cup of like the the Swiss Miss bag in the... No, no, I don't think so. Nothing like that. With a tiny little... Stone Pebble Marshmallows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think we should say the names of competitors. You yeah. should call it Miss Swiss. Miss Swiss. Right. right. Switch them. Right? Okay. All right. Well, spoonerism like that. Go. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I will try not to make that mistake in thank the future. Thank you. Thank yes. you. So this was, it was kind of like a, so it was an unsweetened chocolate. Unsweetened chocolatey flavor, yeah. but really immersive. You know, it, it hits all your senses, yeah. un- unlike the platonic forms, <laughs> which you cannot perceive with your nose. No. You, you can perceive this tea. You can intuit them. You can. Yeah. But this uh, this makes a big impression. So if our listeners want to try out some of this delicious tea, what should they do, Jeff? Well, they should go to the Gold River uh, Trading Company website. Right. Uh, which is? GoldRiverCO.com. CO.com. And they need to enter the special code. Yes, which is A-N-T-E-A. You came up with that, didn't you? I don't think I did. You didn't like it last time. I didn't. Up the ante. Ante, yeah. It's like, it's like, like beforehand. Oh, knock it off. I'm sorry. A-N-T-E-A. So it's That's ad nauseum tea. That's right. Yeah, there we go. And you'll get 10% off. Yeah. So this is a company based in uh, Dallas, Texas. They import only the finest teas. There are no fannings, no dust particles, anything like that. These are real tea leaves. And great packaging. Yeah, the packaging. Impressive they come in these packaging. little pyramidal... I don't know last time if I said sachets or sachets. I'm all over the map on this. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, but... But it's shaped like a pyramid. Right. And the tea's inside. Yep. And... Uh, would you say the learning curve for tea is steep? Oh, man. <laughs> um, I'm just going to leave that one there. All right. But yeah, uh, check out goldriverco.com. That's right. Uh, A-N-T-E-A in the coupon code. We go on to book two now, don't we? We do. Yep. So this is the Stoic. This is Balbus. Right. And he's going to make his pitch for um, what the gods are like. Correct. Right. He's going to give four distinct arguments and a syllogism. I like this. Sounds very organized. Yeah, he's very organized. That's right. how the Stoics are. And we're going to unpack it all, all right. for the listener and for the viewer a little bit at a time. Okay. And now first, a little bit of a historical background. Please. And that is, this is based largely on a lecture I gave, uh, one of two international lectures I gave. Where were you? I was in Athens. Oh. Yeah, let's set the scene. Okay. It was the autumn of 2014. Yes. Okay. 
<laughs> you, you there? I'm there. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm trying to add some ambiance. No, I like it. We bit. need to, we need some background. We music. need some ambiance right. to alleviate the ennui. I say, okay. We know. So, where in Athens are you? I'm at me... the um, the NKUA, the National Encapadistrian University of Athens. Okay. I got a, I got a nice invitation that a fellow academic in the classics department there uh, drummed up for me. So I could go on a sabbatical, yeah. and I uh, went over to Athens, fall of 14, took my wife and uh, my eldest daughter, mm-hmm. and we got to tour Greece, and I gave a lecture there on this topic, Cicero and Natural Theology, at the university. Wow. It was really nice. Oh, it sounds, but, sounds like you're kind of a big deal. No, I'm not. Oh, okay. <laughs> one of two international lectures. Okay. They're well, the kind of se- like junkets. Where was, where was the second one? The other one was in uh, Lisbon, Portugal, Oh, where I lectured on William Perkins. Remember? Yeah. Cranks for the memories. I, I, I do remember. I, did, I gave a paper in Lisbon. I loved Lisbon. Yeah. yeah. Lisbon's the first place I took an Uber. Really? Yep. Wow. A Portuguese Uber. How was yeah, it? A good was, experience? It was great. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I, I made it in and out okay. And um, so, yeah, I, get, I gave the lecture there. And mm-hmm. this is largely based on that. So we're going to begin in section 12 of book two. Okay. So for those who are following along at home, playing the home game, we're going to begin in section 12. I'm going to read a little bit of the Latin. You're going to read a little bit of the Rackham translation. I, I am. And uh, then we're going to talk about the underlying philosophy. So okay. here it goes. Itaqua inter omnis omnium gentium summa constat, omnibus enum innatum est et in animo quasi in sculptum esse deus. Which means? Which means, um, hence the main issue is agreed among all men of all nations, inasmuch as all have engraved in their minds an innate belief that the gods exist. And that's right. Okay. So that's the starting point. All right. So Balbus makes four claims here. We're going to go through them one by one. The first claim we can summarize in typical Latin form, Deus esse, that there are gods. Mm-hmm. So when you in Latin want to write a series of propositions, they're always accusative and infinitive. That's a form. Here it is, that there are gods, Deus esse. Now he says, notice that it is the uh, universal conclusion of all the nations, inter omnis omnium gentium summa constat, there is the highest agreement that there are gods. Now, is he just making just a huge assumption here? When where's the argument? Well, the argument is going to come later, okay. but it's going to be based once again on nature, because mm-hmm. the Stoics are always living secundum naturam. Right. You got to live according to nature, or the Greek katafusen. But he says there are two elements here: it's innatum est, it's innate to everyone, and it is in sculptum. Now, in sculptum, right, is the word from which we get sculpture. Yep. So the notion is that it is carved. On the soul, in animo quasi in sculptum, it is as it were etched on the soul. Now, this is this is sounds something close to like um, um, you know, being made in the image of God. It sounds exactly like right. that. So in fact, that inner spark. Right. right? <clears throat> what uh, John Calvin referred to as the sensus divinitatis, or the semen uh, divinitatis. Now, you brought this up last episode very nicely with a reference to Paul in Romans 1. Yeah. And then I added, there's also uh, Romans 2, verses 14 and 15, where Paul says, those, I'm just par- paraphrasing, but those who don't have the law but do by nature what the law requires, they show that the law is inscribed on their hearts. Yeah. It's the very same metaphor. It's not the same word, of course, because that's Greek and this is Latin. Yeah. It's the self-same idea. Yeah. And it's it's a Stoic idea, right? It's a universal idea. So we have these two notions, in sculptum and inatum est. Okay. Right. So here comes then the syllogism. Right? All right. The formal argument. Uh, Balba says, first, it is absolutely necessary that those of whom there are interpreters exist. 
it is absolutely necessary that those of whom there are interpreters exist. What? Or we could say, it is ne- absolutely necessary that uh, a person exists if there are those who are interpreting his will, his desires, his intentions. Okay. Okay. The second point in the syllogism, but there are interpreters of the gods. Okay. The conclusion, therefore, we must confess that the gods exist. This is part of the Stoic argument. So if you find an interpreter of someone else, it's a pointer or a signal or evidence that that person exists. So let's use a a more common um, example if we can, right? Someone shows up at my door, knocks on the door and says, I am here with a message from Winkle, right? The vomitorium is closed, Mm -hmm. right? So if there's a messenger from Winkle, it's necessary that there's a Winkle, Okay. Right. That's the first element. All right. So it is absolutely necessary that those of whom there are interpreters or messengers, mm-hmm. that that person exists. Okay. But there are interpreters of, or messengers of Winkle. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we must confess that Winkle exists. Okay. I'm glad I exist. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So someone showed up at your door and mm-hmm. said, you know, the governor of Michigan has a message for you, mm-hmm. right? Uh, well, that entails the existence of the governor of Michigan mm-hmm. if that person is truly a messenger. I'm following. Yep. And since that person is truly a messenger, we must confess that the gods exist. Now, when, when Baba says interpreters of the gods, I mean, what kind of person is he referring to? Is like prophets? Um, prophets, priests. Priests. Uh, and so they get into a little bit of the question of divination. Okay. Now, of course, in uh, ancient Rome, there are two major categories of divination. There is augury, yes. right? The flight of birds. Yep. And then there's the horospex, right? The staring into the entrails. Right. How'd you like that job? I'd, I'd rather be a bird watcher I'd myself. rather be a bird right, watcher. Exactly, yeah. Some binoculars, maybe some sandwiches. Yeah. <laughs> right. Although I think that, you know, if it would be easier to interpret maybe a sheep's liver, like, you know, stationary in front of you and then watching some chickens walk around. I suppose. Or, yeah, I don't know. None of them sound especially pleasant, no. but we're trying to choose the lesser of two divinations, you yeah. might say. <laughs> right. Cicero wrote a whole uh, dialogue on this, De Divinatione, in right. two books on mm-hmm. divination, which he talks about all the Roman practices of trying to figure out the will of the gods mm-hmm. from the birds and from the entrails. So he's talking about those. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, this is obviously the weakest point of the argument, right? The second premise, there are interpreters of the gods. Some people would say, this is question begging, right? How do you know that they are interpreters of the gods? Mm-hmm. Doesn't, doesn't that open up... Um, an entirely new can of worms, right? It's mm-hmm. Principium Petty. It's begging the question. But if it's true that there really are messengers of the gods, well, then there have to be gods because there can't be messengers if there aren't gods. Isn't he also in some ways making a kind of historical argument too that there have kind of always been interpreters of yes, the gods? Yes, I think that's right. Right. So it's not that the, this has just happened, but if you look no. back, you know, it, there's, there have always been people talking about the gods and interpreting right. them. And that's... Where did that come from? Where did that come from? Right. It didn't just arise from nothing, right? Right. Ex nihilo. So that's the first argument. Uh, or that's the first point in his four-point argument, right? That there are gods deus esse. Mm-hmm. Then we go on to the second argument, and this is an attempt to prove quales sint, right? What they are like. Okay. Right? So, so what are the gods like? And so for this, we have to go on to a different section. This is section 29. So here in section 29, or, you know, small number 11, we get the second part of the argument, what the gods are like, mm-hmm. quale sent. So I'll read a little bit of the Latin again, and you can read from the Rackham if you would. Sure. So, natura est igitur, quae contineat mundum omnem eumque tueatur, 
rea quidem non sine sensu atque ratione, omnim enem naturam necesse est, quae non solitaria sit neque simplex sed cum alio iuncta atque connexa habere aliquem in se principatum ut in hominementem, in bellua quidam similamentis unde oriantur rerum ad peditus. All right. So Rackham translates. That's right. Uh, there is therefore an element that holds the whole world together and preserves it. And this an element possessed of sensation and reason. Since every natural object that is not a homogeneous and simple substance, but a complex and composite one, must contain within it some ruling principle. For example, in man, the intelligence. In the lower animals, something resembling intelligence that is the source of appetition. Yes. Okay. You got that? Well, Can you unpack that for us a little bit? Well, I, I, um, once, I, I mean, no offense to Mr. Rackham, <laughs> but uh, I think this, this book needs you to, to, produ- to produce... Smooth it out a little bit? It needs, this needs a new translation. Yeah. Right? Well, the Walsh translation, which I think is Penguin, I think Walsh is Penguin, um, is pretty good. Is that P.G. Walsh? It is. Okay. Yeah. You know him? He does. He did a nice translation of Apuleius. So, oh. Yeah. I yeah. think it's a pretty good translation. All right. Translations, I would say, have to always be updated and improved. Indeed. English idiom changes a lot. Indeed. Indeed. So, he, as, again, is he talking about that, you know, both humans and animals are kind of have a, a, um, a kind of a reflection of the gods within them? Well, or? everything has a ruling principle, mm-hmm. right? Uh, a hegemonicon, he'll say a little bit further down. So those are who are familiar with Plato will know that in the tripartite soul, there's one part called the ruling part, the hegemonicon. Mm-hmm. Um, hegemony, the English word hegemony comes from that. Yeah. So everything has to have a ruling principle. So the world has a ruling principle as well, right? Okay. And, yep. and that is identified with nature or with uh, divine writ large. Okay. All right. How is this really unpacking... The qualis sent, the what... What the gods are. What yeah, the, the gods the are. The qualis sent. Right. Well, there are things which are born from the earth, ea quae gignantur, a terdre. Balba says, there are things which are born from the earth. These are the creations of the gods buried in the earth. Mm-hmm. There's something that is similar to a mind. Uh, and eventually he will, I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but he will identify... Uh, the world with the divine, right? The world has a soul. The world itself is divine. Mm -hmm. This is a little bit different than pantheism because it's not the idea that um, the divine resides in everything, but that the world is identified with what is divine. Okay. The world has a soul. Gotcha. The world soul. I mean, that's something that shows up that becomes very prominent in Kind of later, middle and Neoplatonism. Yes. Right? So, I, mean, I think there are there are elements of of going back to to Plato himself. There's notions of kind of a world soul. And, Definitely. And, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this this mind kind of like element, right? Which is in all things, in beasts, in human beings. There's reason. The world. There's a soul, right? It looks to um, preserve its own status. So there's the concept of self-preservation. All things naturally want to preserve their own status, mm-hmm. uh, and they want to avoid their own destruction. Okay. Right? Yeah. So this is the notion of um, oikiosis or appropriation. So we naturally take to ourselves things that allow us to survive, and we naturally avoid those things that lead to our destruction. Mm-hmm. And that is you know, something the gods have instilled in us. Gotcha. So this, right. this describes uh, part of their nature. Okay. I mean, it sounds something like that, you know, um, like Mr. Darwin would say is just kind of a, uh, a, a godless principle of, of adaptation and survival. But Balbus is, is saying, well, 
no, this is something, this is a, actually a desire and a need that God has implanted within us. Yeah, the gods have implanted. The gods, right, right. right. That's really interesting because typically a Darwinian thought is more identified with Epicurus, right? Because Epicurus has a, as we saw when we went through those episodes, mm-hmm. Epicurus has a... Um, a proto-Darwinian understanding of the the birth and development of all the creatures. But there's a lot in common with the Stoic system as well, as you just pointed out, mm-hmm. right? The self-preservation impulse, um, I think Darwin describes it as, you know, the propagation and survival of the species, which doesn't really take into, a, I don't want to get too far afield, something I don't know enough about, but yeah. doesn't really take into account a lot the individual, but the individual is always looking for the survival of uh, the group. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah. Now, does does Balbus? I mean, I might be getting ahead of things here, but does Balbus um, ever talk about? So these things are implanted in us by the gods, right? Um, but is it more kind of a more kind of a, a deist kind of thing? The gods implant this within us and then leave us alone, or or is there an interest in the gods in humanity? Well, that's going to come in the fourth. Okay. The third and fourth elements of his argument okay. include. So you are getting ahead of I'm yourself. Sorry. That's All right. Okay. Yep. Include the gods caring for human beings, okay. and there are arguments as to why they should do this and how they should do this. Hmm. But before we go there, I want to tell a little anecdote, and then we're going to have a a break. Okay. Right? So the anecdote is, I needed this Rackham translation for this very episode, Mm -hmm. and uh, the lovely Mrs. Noe said, oh, I can pick it up at the library for you. I was pawing through my boxes of all my books, you know, because- Just throwing papers around? Well, I was recently uh, unofficed, right, not too long ago. (laughs) So a lot of my books are in storage, and I'm just searching high, searching low for the Rackham, and I could not find it. So she said, I'll go pick it up for you. So that's very nice. And she reported back that when she got to the fifth floor of the institution in the PA section, yep. where these books are housed, she said all the lights were off. What? <laughs> really? I said, was the library open? Oh, it's open, but the lights were off. They just shut down the fifth floor? I said, why were all the lights off? Well, obviously, because no one's going to check out classics books. <laughs> I said, that's that's a good story. Oh, man. They, they're so confident that nobody's going to be checking out these books. Yeah. They can just, well, just save some energy. Just save some energy, shut it down. Right. right. So Mrs. Noe did, did, not, know, did not venture in, like, she didn't use, like, the flashlight on her phone to go... Uh, kind of I don't know. It. I gave her a helmet with a light mounted on the top <laughs> right. and yeah, a, yeah. a pickaxe, you, yeah. know? you know? And you know if the electricity went out, those are the books that would first go into the barrel to keep people's hands warm. <laughs> you sadly, know that you know Sadly, that's you're probably true. right. Yeah, yeah. You know that's true. Yeah. Well, is it time for a break? It's time for a break. All right. This episode is brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Jeff, tell us about Hackett. I love Hackett Publishing. Okay. I use their text in my classroom all the time. Um, I love looking through their website, just the vast array of stuff they have available. Um, and we've, we've talked a lot about their classical offerings we in have. here, but there's way more than, than just the classics. Way more. Yep. So I recently uh, uh, picked up their uh, translation of Aristophanes' Frogs. Oh, yeah. My... my all-time favorite Greek play. So this would be um, the Peter Meinik translation, yes. is that right? It's excellent. Is right? it really? Yep. With introduction and notes. Yep. So Meinik is, a, a lot of his his translations are used for stage productions oh. uh, from the Aquila Company. It's, you know, that's got to be good. It's great stuff. Yep. It's a, it's a, it's a fairly loose translation. Okay. But, but, um, well, let's not say loose. Let's say free. Uh, free. It's a free translation. Inventive. Right. Um, but he captures the tone and the yeah. spirit. It's very, very funny. Yeah. Other things you can find on the website, as I'm just scrolling through here visually, Buddhism as philosophy, Aristotle's Eudemian ethics, 
Uh, How Do You Know uh, by Gordon Barnes, a dialogue. Two Sagas of Norse Myth, Applied Ethics. It just goes on. The Essential Thucydides. Mm-hmm. I guess they took Thucydides and boiled him down in a pot or something. And... I guess so. And just which It rendered the essential parts of it, right? <laughs> Out came Thucydides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes yeah. you light a candle. Sometimes you light the essential Thucydides. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I see they have a um, an edition of Shakespeare's Macbeth, yes. which I am teaching actually next week in one of my classes. Oh, you're going to yeah. use this one? Yeah. I, I didn't know about it, but now well, I this, know. This is the Blitz edition. Yeah. Um, it, Jan, Jan H. Blitz. Looks great. Looks like it has another kind of wonderful, interesting haunting cover it does yeah cursed play yes so Hackett has been they're now in their 50th year and we've been associated with them for one and a half of those 50 that's right that's right yeah located in Indianapolis Indiana and Cambridge Massachusetts listener if you go to their website hackettpublishing.com Mishka's going to put it up here for the uh, video edition and you enter the coupon code after you put your items into your little satchel. Mm-hmm. And that coupon code is AN2022. That's correct. Yep. You'll save 20% and free shipping. Can't beat it. It's an incredible bargain. Check, Check it, it out. out. This episode of Ad Nauseam also brought to you by Ratio Coffee. Dave, tell us what you love about Ratio Coffee. Well, I had some friends over the other night, mm-hmm. uh, some family. Um, it was my nephew and uh, his uh, romantic interest. Mm-hmm. And um, we were serving up some, you know, some, some delicious food and so forth. And she commented and said, is that a coffee machine? And my whole family started rolling their eyes. <laughs> <laughs> is that a coffee machine? She said, that is so interesting. That is so beautiful. I said, let me tell you about my coffee machine. <laughs> actually, I didn't have to because one of my kids gave her the whole explanation. Really? She said, is that actual wood? Well, those are natural wood accents. <laughs> I mean, this product sells itself, you know? And then you said to your nephew, marry this girl. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Ratio 8. Yes. It's a work of art. It mm-hmm. solves all of your aesthetic and brew-based problems. Mm-hmm. Mine is an oyster, as the audience knows, with these walnut accents, matches my cabinets. And uh, I'm using a new cone filter now. It's gold-plated. Gold-plated? I think it's real gold, but it doesn't matter. The coffee is great. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I got the ratio six. You I do. Think. Everything you said about the aesthetics applied to that as well. It's a, I have a, the sleek stainless steel model there. Um, yeah. Every morning, um, hit the button, uh, bloom, brew, You got ready. three stages. You got three stages. You got the bloom. Right. And during the bloom, mm-hmm. the hot water comes down and sits in the cone. Yes. And there's some... There's some off-gassing. Off-gassing. <laughs> it always, make, always makes me a little uncomfortable. Yeah, about what are we, in seventh grade? I know. <laughs> it never leaves you. It never <laughs> no, does. No, it doesn't. Yeah. You're off gas. You're off gas. Then you brew, and the water filters down through the grounds, and it's an automatic pour over. Best coffee I've ever had. And I was traveling last week. Mm-hmm. I was down in Texas doing some Latin teaching and so forth, and I had to drink some hotel coffee. Oh, no. I had to drink coffee in a lot of places. I almost lost my taste for coffee altogether, I'll tell you. But the, the pot was on one of those those hot pads, yeah, right? one of the yeah. scorch pads. Yep. No good. Brackish tang. Brackish tang. Dare I say. Mm-hmm. So, I got to come home to the ratio eight. That's that's that is that's homecoming right there. So, um, it, listeners, if you go to ratiocoffee.com, and uh, they also have a coupon code box. They do. What do they put there? It's, it's A N C O ad nauseum coffee, and you'll get fifteen percent off uh, both either the the six six or the eight. That's right, mm-hmm. and. 
We're having this special promotion. This is the last time, ladies and gentlemen. If you haven't yet gone to racialcoffee.com slash A-N-C-O, now's the time. You can win a free Racial 6. This is an almost $400 machine. It's huge. And thanks to the generosity of Mark Helweg, we're giving one away. Go check it out. What are you waiting for? So if, if they listen... It, no, we're going to give them the code now. We're going to give them the code now. Let's okay. give them the code now. Okay. Why should we wait? The code is... Uh, six five. Six seven. Six five six seven. Six five six seven. Go to racialcoffee.com slash ANCO, enter your name, your email, and those four digits. Next week, we're announcing the winner. This is your last chance. Very exciting. All right, Jeff, as we get back into it now, we yeah. have to look at two more elements of the Stoic argument here in book two. Okay, so what's Balwas got for us next? Right, so we know that the gods exist, deus esse, mm-hmm. we saw his syllogism. We know what they're like, quales sint, they're that organizing hegemenicon, mm-hmm. uh, principle of intelligence that animates the whole world, reflected in human reason, reflected in a, a quidam similamentis, the beast's got something like that. Yep. And now we go on to the third and fourth, which is that they govern the world. Okay. So this is mundum ab iis administrari. All right. So this sounds more uh, God's kind of hands-on. No, that's exactly right. Okay. All right. I'm so excited by it, I can't get the words out. <laughs> it's not like the uh, Epicurean Lucretius, right? Yes. Where the gods are distant, they're off doing their godlike stuff. They just what? don't really, they don't Why really would care. They care. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. So, what, 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 tell us about this. All right. So, let's look at section 29 or 73, depending on your numbering, book two. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read a little bit of the Latin, and then you're going to give us some of the uh, English. Yes. The Rackham. From Rackham. And we got to mm-hmm. talk about Rackham for a second. Okay. All right. Here goes. Proximum est ut doceam de ordrum providentia mundum administrari. Magnus sana locus est et a vestris cata vexatus, ac nimerum vobiscum omnicer tamen est, nam vobis velei minus notum est quem ad modum quidque dicatur, vestra enim solum legatis, vestra amatis, cateros causa incognita condemnatus. All right. And then uh, Mr. Rockham. Uh, next, I have to show that the world is governed by divine providence. This is, of course, a vast topic. The doctrine is hotly contested by your school, Kata. And it is they, no doubt, that are my chief adversaries here. And as for you and your friends, Vileus, sorry, you scarcely understand the vocabulary of the subject, for you only read your own writings and are so enamored of them that you pass judgment against all the other schools without giving them a hearing. Ah. All right, so now he's taking the, the guys to task. Yes, Balbus, he's saying, your guys, Kata, right, it's a vast subject, and that's really where our whole contest lies. Words mm-hmm. of that effect? Yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. But then he disses, he gives the old Heisman stiff arm mm-hmm. to Valeus with a, a pretty good put down. Right. Can you read a little bit of that so again? You, just... you scarcely understand the vocabulary of the subject. Right. So it's just kind of, you're just, you don't even know what you're talking about. Ignorant about the theological terminology mm-hmm. that has to do with how the gods govern the world. Providentia mundum administrari, the de ordem providentia. I'd like to give a little quick etymological lesson, if I may, Please. about the word providentia, mm-hmm. right? So it's made up of pro and a stem of videra, which means to see. Mm -hmm. So providence is that ability to foresee things before they happen. You see it before it comes into existence. Mm -hmm. And both providentia and prudentia, prudence, they're from the same origin. Okay. Prudence also. So the gods have this capacity and they use it to govern the world. Okay. 
And he says that Valeus and the Epicureans have no concept They got of this. no clue what's going on. And okay. the reason they don't is because they only read their own writings. Mm. They are uh, intellectually incurious, you might say, mm-hmm. about what the other persons are doing. And he just says about Kata, he says that um, uh, you guys like to debate about this a lot. You do. Right. Well, that's what academic skeptics do. That's right. right. Yep. It's all about what's probable. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Balbus then goes on to give some more content of what it means that the world is governed by the gods. And okay. first of all, he says that providentia, providence, is the mains mundi. It's the mind of the world, Right. So the mind, I'm sorry, the world has its own kind of intelligence, and this is how things get governed. This is what controls the tides and the, um, the birth and the death of creatures and people. This is how everything works. Mm-hmm. The world has a mind. It's the providence of the gods. Now, is this, at this point in the argument, is this similar to, I was just talking about this with my myth students this morning. Um, similar to kind of a Greek concept of like the like Moira and fate, is that you know there the the men's mundi spins the thread, measures the thread, cuts the thread. I or, don't think it's really similar. Okay, I haven't ever thought about that possibility, but my initial response, you know, being asked just at this moment, is that they're dissimilar ideas. Okay, so I think that the the fates and the concept of Moira has more to do with when a human being's life is finished. I don't know if that's used to describe the general function of the world. Mm-hmm. This is more like a meteorological, climatological, well, those are big words, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, description of how everything in the natural world, how all of physics works. And then it includes human beings because we're part of the natural world, but it isn't really the focus. Gotcha. So this, uh, so Balbus's view at the story is much more kind of universal and cosmic. Comprehensive, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And he, he will say there are three points. First, that the world is very suited very suited to its permanence, to its uh, remaining. And here there is an echo of uh, another one of Cicero's dialogues, Definibus, Book 3. So the world seems to have been shaped and created in such a way that it will last. So all the old schools um, of philosophy thought the world was extraordinarily old. Right. And uh, Aristotle, of course, famously thought that it was eternal, right? Mm-hmm. That the, the universe had no beginning point, no mm-hmm. starting point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The second point is that the world doesn't lack anything that it needs. There's a fullness to everything that you observe. So you look around and, and you don't say, hey, there should be something there, right? Yeah. Everything kind of has its own spot. Think of the millions of species of different kinds of animals. Everywhere you look... There's something there, mm-hmm. right? There's a spider in the corner of my kitchen out on the eastern plains of Colorado with <laughs> Jeff Wilson. There are, I don't know, gallivanting American bison. Yeah. Everything has got its spot, right? Right, right, right. Okay. Is it, now, to kind of drag this um, into uh, kind of contemporary argument, is, is so the, the fates comparison, you say, doesn't hold up. But what, what about kind of... Um, doesn't seem to me. Do, yeah. Okay. Um, but like a, um, an argument... For the existence of God from design. This is where they come from. This is where it comes from. Okay. Yeah, all non-Christian arguments for God's existence based on design derive ultimately from Cicero and the Stoics. Okay. Now they're pres- they're present in a latent way, I would say, in Homer. They're present a little more explicitly in Plato, um, and present somewhat in, in Aristotle. But Cicero is really the conduit to the West of the design arguments. Okay. And it's this book in particular, hmm. book two. Um, because he's channeling Stoic philosophy, 
he, you know, preserved these ideas in Latin, passed them on to the West, mm. Augustine, Lactantius, and others. Okay. So, so this book's really important. This is a, uh, this is a really important link in the chain. It, it is. Yeah. It's foundational. Okay. The third and final element uh, in his argument that the world is governed by the God's providence is he says it exhibits an eximia pocritudo, which would mean a kind of distinguished beauty, mm-hmm. and ominous ornatus. Everything has a kind of decoration. Mm, mm-hmm. And uh, one example of this comes to mind. I was watching a YouTube's, I think it's pronounced YouTube's. Yeah, you were, you were on the YouTube. I was on the YouTube's yeah. and I was watching a video about the dragonfly. Yeah. You should watch it sometime. My favorite insect. Really? Yes. I didn't know that. They're extraordinary. Well, that's what the whole point of this um, video was, that the dragonfly is extraordinary. It can fly backwards. It has a kind of precision in flight that is mind-boggling. It has these compound eyes that are extraordinarily precise. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, the video was 15 minutes of being awed by the dragonfly. Right. Just incredible. It is amazing how it can just kind of, you know, hover and then backwards and, yes. and zip forward. It's, it's, yeah, amazing. It's like me trying to park at the grocery store. <laughs> This is what Cicero is referring to as the eximia pulchritudo and the omnis ornatus. Mm. Uh, And they are, as far as insects go, they're beautiful creatures too. Diaphanous wings and different colors. Yeah, Yeah. They can also intercept their prey in midair and consume it in midair. Wow. 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 Yeah, they're they're incredible. It'd be great to carpool with, right? Yeah. I can just see myself sitting in the passenger seat while he's driving us down the road, you know. And that's who, that's the guy you want. Yeah, he's eating a bagel. He's zipping in and out of traffic. He's doing com- multitasking. Compound eyes. You know who needs the reverse camera? You got a dragonfly. Got a dragonfly. Yeah. So that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Well, this reminds me of you know we're talking about you were saying some of these arguments kind of embedded in already in Homer, but even though, like the Greek word cosmos mm-hmm. uh, implies. Um, Beauty and order. It does, right? yeah. And so the, the universe is inherently you know, balanced. Correct. Yeah, it has kind of an obvious sense that it, right. it conveys. We know from Hesiod, right? Theogony and the ecstasy. Oh, man, you're going way back. I'm going way back. Yep. They call The kids call that a deep cut. A deep cut. Did you know that? I, I, I've heard that. that you know, it's You're that, just trying to be hip. You didn't know that. I know what a deep cut is. Okay. It's the song on the album that does, it wasn't released as a single. All right, That's fine. Right. That's, right. That's yeah. a deep cut. All yeah. the way back to Theogony and the ecstasy. Right. Chaos, right? Yes. Everything arises out of chaos and gets changed into cosmos. Into cosmos, yep. And the, the Stoics say there's cosmos all over the place. Right. It's just pouring out. You can't keep the cabinet door closed. There's so much cosmos. And I think Balbus would also say that if you were to compare you know, creation stories from many different traditions, almost all of them have some element of order coming out of chaos. Definitely. And he would say that's evidence of, of there's many interpreters. That's right. Right. Okay. And so, therefore, there are gods, because yes. there are interpreters. Yes. Back to the syllogism. You got it. Mm-hmm. The fourth and final point. Yeah. And this is uh, section 78, so we have to go ahead just a little bit. Uh, this is section uh, 32, if you're following along, or right before 32. Um, and that is that the gods care for human beings. So I'm going to read a little bit of that, and then uh, if you would, please, mm-hmm. read from the... Um, the Rackham translation. Let mm-hmm. me see if I can find the right part. Uh, atque, uh, sorry, atqui nekesa est cum sint di, si morusunt ut perfectusunt animantes esse, nec solum animantes et etiam rationis compotes inter seque, quasi civili uh, conciliatione et societata conjunctos, 
unum mundum ut communem rempublicam atqua urbem aliquam regentis. And the translation, and yet from the fact of the gods' existence, assuming that they exist, as they certainly do, it necessarily follows that they are animate beings, and not only animate, but possessed of reason and united together in a sort of social community or fellowship, ruling the one world as a united commonwealth or state. Right. Okay. So, the gods have their own society, they have their own structure, and they rule the world together as a commonwealth, communum republicam, or as a kind of city. So, is he saying that the the order of the universe is mimicking the order that the gods have amongst themselves? That's right. Okay. Yep. And so, what follows from that is the fourth and final thesis, consulera eos rebus humanis, that the gods care for, they are invested in human affairs. Okay. This is very different of course, it's the exact opposite of the Epicurean position. Right, where the gods don't care. Completely disinterested. That's right. a mark of their identity. Mm-hmm. So Balbus argues that the gods possess uh, a number of things. They have ratio, reason or system. They have veritas, a kind of uh, respect for truth. And there is a lakes, a law that exists among them, a lakes inter se. Okay. What follows from that is that there is a conciliatio, what you just read, a kind of... Um, I don't know, clubhouse, you might say, for conciliatio. A treehouse. Yeah, they play billiards. and It's right? the No Homers Club, maybe. Yeah, right, yeah. They're having s'mores up yeah. there. Yeah. And, yeah. and a sokiatas, right? Yeah. The gods have a sokiatas, okay. uh, which means they get together mm-hmm. uh, for conversation and tea and coffee and those kinds of things. Okay. That's what they do. Yep. Denial of the gods' providence, according to Balbus, destroys all the good things about the world. Destroys fides. You can't trust people if there are no gods. Mm-hmm. Destroys sokiatas, and it destroys justitia, because the world is that common republic or a kind of city. Yeah. So the argument is pretty sophisticated, because the gods exist and they have this society among them. If you don't believe in them, you can't maintain that kind of society among human beings. So he said the belief in the gods for for Balbas is necessary for. Civilization, exactly. Okay, you can't have it. Right now, what I'm missing here is the. So he's talking about that that the gods care for human beings. What I'm missing here is the why. Um, I don't know. It's not exactly benevolence in a Christian sense. I don't think you'll ever find Balbus saying that that the gods love human beings. Mm -hmm. But it is a kind of parental. No, my parents love me, so don't misunderstand. Yeah. But it's a parental sense of responsibility. I see. We made this. We gotta. We gotta take care of it. And we value these things like order, dignity, honesty, and we want to see them in human society. So it's, it's, it reminds me, it's similar to um, I mean, a question my students ask when reading the Odyssey is, why does Athena care about Odysseus? And I right. think part of it is it's, it's not so much, well, it's kind of maternal, but she sees herself in Odysseus. And she's drawn to that. So yes. we see that the gods kind of recognize themselves right. in human beings and therefore they are worth taking care of. Yes. And Be- there's a name for this. It's what? called phylogenitiveness. Okay. Phylogenitiveness. Phylogenitiveness. Okay. The natural tendency to love what you've created. Hmm. Hmm. So the gods love human beings because we are their creations. I mean, you make things. Do you like the things you make? I'm not talking about your kids. I'm talking about other stuff. Yeah. Most most of the time. Yeah. You have a kind of protectiveness. Hey, that's 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 mine. I did that. Yeah. I'm going to take care of that. Right. 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 
don't scrape that wall. I just painted it. Right. You know. And, and some of those, those woodworking projects of yours I've seen, like in, in the garage. I mean, yeah. you, have, you have a that's you, there's pride in that. Exactly. Right. So so it's not a kind of benevolence. I want to be. I mean, sometimes it is in, in these things we're discussing, but for the Stoic gods, it's not, I really love people. They're so delightful. Mm-hmm. It's more along the lines of, this is my responsibility. So we're a far cry from a kind of a, 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 a Christian notion of the, of, the personal, of the personal God. Yes, not only the Christian notion of a personal God, but even, uh, even more, although that's a very important point, of a, of a God who loves um, those that can't requite him. Mm. Or who are in some sense deeply undeserving yes. of his love. Yes, 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 yes. Right. That's a very different notion. Gotcha. Yep. In fact, just because I'm not sure we're going to get to it next week, I want to mention the Stoic explanation for uh, wickedness because it's very interesting. Mm. The Stoic explanation for wickedness, any kind of uh, brokenness or or injustice in the world, is it's a it's a function of bad reason. You know, your reason goes astray, right? You're not reasoning properly. It's a it's a basic Platonic argument about mm-hmm. human failures, failure of a kind of education or understanding. But the interesting part is what causes that, and what causes it. The Stoics say is habitudo. 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 Yeah. What's what is that? Sluggishness or dullness. When because the the Stoics are materialists, right? Mm-hmm. Every everything is uh, materialistic, but their their gods are nonetheless caring. But Habituto is a kind of sluggishness or coldness that takes over your mind so you can't think properly. Your mind atoms aren't properly excited or moving at the right speed. Hmm. And so you reach wrong conclusions. So this would be a stoic... Um, I, th- I, I hear you. We're kind of dealing with the problem of evil. Exactly. Call it, right? So why is there wickedness? Well, wickedness stems from irrationality. Mm-hmm. People don't understand the truth. They don't reason properly. Why don't they do that? Hebitude is the best answer that I've found. So the antidote is philosophy. The antidote is to keep your mind hot. Okay. Sometimes they even say living in cold regions can slow down your capacity to reason and lead you to erroneous conclusions, and then you break out into wickedness. So literally, yes, literal heat. Yes. Okay. So the temperature tonight in Michigan, the low, do you know what it is? It's going to be, I heard it could be sub-zero tonight. Three. I think it's three, three degrees. Okay. So there's a habitude all over. Oh, man. Now, We're interestingly, in the opposite actually happens. Crime goes down when it gets really cold. <laughs> oh, Do you know this? It seems it seems a, a very obvious conclusion. Yeah, it's right. t- it's too cold to go out and do anything wrong. You right. just huddle around a, I don't know, a barrel of burning lobes to try to <laughs> stay warm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But this is what the gods do, right? Mm-hmm. They maintain ratio veritas and lakes, and um, these things they come to men from the gods. These things are the gifts. The gods give us reason and truth and law. These are their gifts to us, and we got to maintain them. Gotcha. Atheism leads, according to Balbus and the Stoics, atheism leads to the dissolution of society. Very interesting. Well, Dave, we're up against the clock. We are. Are we gonna? Are we gonna maybe uh, get to some of this latter stuff next week? We got to wrap it up here pretty soon. I yep. think we should make a few comments about Rackham. Rackham. Yeah, yeah he's yeah. the translator of this wonderful volume. What's his first name? H. H? Rackham? Yeah. I don't know what the H stands for. Horentius? I don't I think don't so. No? It's just H. Rackham, H- M-A. Okay. These old translators, I love them. Uh, did you play a game as a kid called Racco? 
we had Racco on the shelves. Did you it, play it? It was I my think, question. I think we played it maybe once or twice. Hmm. I have a nat- natural disinclination towards anything that you know ends the word with a dash and an O. And an O. Right. I think it was, I was at do, the, you, do you like Cheerios? I, I'm not a big Cheerios fan. Okay. Uh, I was at the store the other day, and there was a product called Bake-O. Bake-O? B-A-C-O. Was, was like, it was like, a bacon product? It was like fake bacon. Uh, I mean, the O is just... If it's got O on the right. end. Did you play Racco? I played a lot of Racco. <laughs> And for a while, I was enamored of it. I don't know really? if the listeners know how it works, but you have a rack, yeah. and you get cards, and you draw the cards, and the whole point of the game is to put them in sequence. That's it? That's it. Man. So you got, you know, 1, 7, 15, 4, 22, you got to get that 4 out of there because it's out of sequence. It's yeah. not ascending properly. I, I played it with my grandparents, and yeah. it always involved... <laughs> cookies and sodas because that's the memory that you're so yes it was the fun of being with my generous game-loving grandparents yeah in retrospect the game was a big dud no yeah i i do i don't remember enjoying it right they should have called it rackham they should have called it rack o well another major announcement is we had talked on the air at times about having a, a greece trip this coming may yes and we have decided uh to postpone it yeah Yep. Because we're both going to a Racco tournament in Oklahoma City. <laughs> the semifinals. We're not, we're not missing that. We're going to have to practice a lot. How does it go? Is it 11, 12, 10? No, it's 11, 12, 13. <laughs> this episode brought to you by Racco from Brothers Parker. <laughs> no, uh, but seriously, yeah. we're not going to Greece this year. Not this year. It's not going to work out. Too many COVID issues and other things. Mm-hmm. We do hope to take uh, a bevy. We take a bevy. A bevy, yeah. A posse, a bevy. A folk moot. A folk moot yeah. of uh, y'all ad nauseum listeners to Greece at some point. At some point. It's not going to happen in May of 2022. But when it happens, it's going to be spectacular. Huge. It's going to be huge. With the, the hayride, right? Which the hay- comes first? The hayride comes first. Do you first. forget the hayride? No, I'd never forget the hayride. Okay. Right. <laughs> and uh, a few rounds of Racco. <laughs> well, that wraps it up. Yep. We got some people to thank. We got some people to thank. Yeah. Let's let's thank Agricola first. Agricola, who's been here this whole time, burning the midnight oil, yes. yeah, making sure nothing is burning, yes, right, no no lights and nothing else is going up in smoke. But uh, his, our videographer, yeah, very patient, talented guy, sets everything up. Doesn't have a lot to do. You know what um, I really like about him? What I like that he often offers us suggestions and we don't listen. Yeah, <laughs> and he doesn't quit. <laughs> That's really incredible. Yes, tenacious. That yes, tenacious. Tenacious that guy. Agricola. Yeah. Thanks to Mishka, of course. Yes. Our, our our engineer, audio engineer, puts the video together. Mm-hmm. Makes us look better, sound better than we naturally do. I think George was offering to add in a little hair, wasn't he? He was. I'm hoping to Photoshop in a little. I'm, I'm asking. You think that. people will notice? Oh, if we do it gradually, we do it you know, gradually within six months. I say, well, man, <laughs> I'll be looking like a lion's mane. <laughs> Those are some hirsute guys. <laughs> A couple of Versingatorigues. Oh, my God. (laughs) Thanks also to Ken Tamplin and Scott Vinzen for the awesome music you hear throughout the podcast. The intro, the bumper, the outro. Yep. Um, And write us. Um, We would love to hear from you. Yeah, so write to Dave at Dave at AdNauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or Jeff. Send the hate mail to Jeff at yep. adnauseum.com. Don't it. forget the V. We're on the YouTubes now. If we you are? want to watch these shenanigans, these hijinks, we're offering you that opportunity. I got a comment today from a Mr. Edmund Burke. 
That's isn't that like a famous philosopher? Famous English philosopher, yeah. an arch conservative, a guy I like. Yeah. I don't think it's the same one unless there's some funny metaphysical business going on. I wouldn't on. Gu- I would not guess it would be the same no. one. Yes, yes. He left a comment along the lines of it's hard to find you guys on the YouTubes. What? But it's really easy. It's just youtube.com slash ad nauseum. Don't forget the V. Yeah, just don't forget the V. That's the issue. That's right. So we're there. We'd love for you to come watch, leave some comments, uh, subscribe. That'd be really nice. Yep. Uh, tell us your story. We'd love to give you a shout out. Yes, yeah. we need shout outs. Yep. So next week, we're going to wrap up our look at De Natura Deorum with yes, part book three. three. That's right. Caught it in the academics. Right. And Dave, you've got our gustatory parting shot. I do. But before, I'd like to say a couple quick words about yes. some Greek and Latin programs I'm offering. Oh, take it away. All right. So Moss Method will take you from? Neophyte to erudite. That's correct. If you know little or no Greek, I can help you with that deficiency. Can take you to a really high level of Greek proficiency. Oh, man. I didn't intend you're, that. You're, you're, dropping, <laughs> you're dropping the beats. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so go to mossmethod.com, sign up for the class, $2.99. You get more than 40 lessons, six tests, 40 assignments. It's something like 25 hours of video instruction. And each week you get to interact with me during our office hours. With the, with the, with your flunky, not No, you. no flunky. Okay. I don't assign Agricola or... <laughs> You. <laughs> no, you wouldn't want that. No. no, I'm there personally. You're there personally. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. yeah, very cool. And I'm also offering Latin. Latinperdm.com slash LLPSI. Uh, we're out of the beta stage now. You can sign up, study Latin. It's $199. It's a good bargain. You get lifetime access to the instructional videos and access to me for one full year. Fantastic. So mossmethod.com. And latinperdm.com slash LLPSI. All right. Dave, you have our gustatory parting shot tonight, don't you? I do. Yes. Now I'm going to read it, and I'd like you to interact with it a little bit. Okay. Oh, yeah. This is the episode that never ends. <laughs> this is from Julie Piat. Mm-hmm. Piat. And the title of the book is one I'm not so fond of. Yes. The Plant Power Way. I don't like this already. Whole food, plant-based recipes and guidance for the whole family. It's getting worse. But no bakos. No, no, no bako here. <laughs> but I like the quote nevertheless. Okay. Unlike a painting or a sculpture... Food is an impermanent, fleeting art form. Okay. There's some wisdom to that. Yeah, that's nice. I made a nice sandwich the other day. But now it's, and now I it's ate gone. It. Now it's gone. It's gone. Right. right. It's a fleeting, impermanent art form. She says, quote, it's a momentary artistic offering, the enjoyment of which necessitates its destruction. Wow. It's, it's a, have you ever seen the, 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 the Buddhists with their mandalas? And they create these intricate patterns, you know, by which to kind of, you know, um, meditate and right. engage in the spiritual. But then once once it, it's done, they make a big show of destroying it in a perfect kind of way to kind of illustrate exactly what Miss Piat oh, is saying. Right. Yeah. So this is this is this is deep. Deep. Yeah. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.